We're in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 20, verse 8. We are going to keep uh, charging on in the gospel of Luke uh, all the way until we get to Easter. And, and the way that the passages are going to lay out is we're going we're gonna to land on uh, e- the resurrection of Christ on Easter. And so I'm enjoying going through the gospel of Luke with you. If you were here with us last week, We went through the passage known as the triumphal entry where Jesus comes in to Jerusalem and the people are praising and and worshiping him uh, as the king, the coming Messiah. And Jesus welcomes that praise and affirms that worship that he is in fact the son of God. And he is coming down the Mount of Olives and approaching the city, the capital city of Jerusalem during that triumphal entry entry. He's entering into the capital city. And so our time here this morning in this passage picks up right at the at the tail end of that as he is entering into Jerusalem and looking at the city. So if you would please stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word. Luke chapter 19 verses 41 through chapter 20 verse 8. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children uh, within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. And one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes of the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So we've got three different little events in the life of Jesus, all of which we could spend a whole Sunday on. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to go through these things and learn what we can, I believe, what the Lord would have for us this morning from these things. When Jesus was first brought into Jerusalem as a child, as a newborn child, he was rejoiced over, prophesied over as the Messiah to come. And here at the end of Jesus' ministry, as he comes into the capital city of Jerusalem, he weeps over the city. Because the people at large have not accepted his ministry and have not believed him to be who he says that he is. John writes about this in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, which is the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. And so in this passage, we see a stark reminder of how Jesus' own people, the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, did not accept his ministry for the most part. And so he begins weeping over Jerusalem. And this is not a metaphorical thing. This is weeping. I've been a part of a week where there's been a lot of weeping this week, true weeping, and reminded of what true deep sorrow is like. And the sorrow of Christ Jesus looking at the capital city of his chosen people is very real. And he's going to go on to speak about the destruction of Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that at length. But it's not a metaphorical, it's a real destruction. People are going to die. The people are going to be judged for their sin and their wickedness and their unbelief. But in verse 42, he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Which is interesting. It speaks to the hardness of heart of the people. They have heard Jesus and his disciples have been preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching for years. And for years, certain people have said, no, I'm not interested in that. No, I don't believe this. No, I'm turning away from this. No, I hate this. How can I get rid of this Jesus and be done with him? And their hearts are hardened. And they're hardened to the place where they can no longer believe. I think sometimes people take for granted, oh, I'll, just, I'll just trust in Jesus later. I'm going to go do whatever I want to do now, and later I'll come to Jesus when it's maybe convenient for me. But the Bible is full of teaching that we do not come to God whenever we want to come to God. We must be drawn to Him. And when our hearts are convicted and the door is open, that is the time of response to Jesus Christ. And when hearts are hardened, judgment will come. In ancient Israel, when the nation of Israel was so rebellious after prophet after prophet after generation after generation had been called to the Lord and over and over and over they refused and instead of getting better, they got worse because we are never neutral, our hearts are desperately wicked and when we are not seeking the Lord, we will be going away from him. And the Lord brought in Assyria to overthrow and to judge Israel. And he brought in Babylon to overthrow and to judge Judah. And here we are many years, many generations later, where the Lord God is going to bring in Rome to judge Israel at this time. But it's very personal. This whole section of verse 41 through 44 says, You, your, you, 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 15 times in just a few verses. It's not a general thing. He's looking at people, and Jesus is talking to people, and he's saying, you are the one. You have rejected Jesus. Your people have rejected the salvation of God, and he weeps over what is getting ready to happen, and then he prophetically describes it. He says in verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, that, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation, speaking to the coming of Christ and believing in him. And so were these words fulfilled? They were absolutely fulfilled down to the letter. In 66 A.D., uh, after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, led by the Essenes and the Zealots, 
the zealots who were political zealots who thought that they were bringing about the salvation of the people of Israel by overthrowing the Romans and restoring national Israel. They started rioting in Caesarea and then the uprising went to Jerusalem and before 66 AD was over, there was open war against Rome and that they had taken back the capital city into full Jewish control and they thought they had a great victory. But two years later, Vespasian uh, came with 60,000 Roman soldiers and began to siege Jerusalem. And the siege went on for some time until the death of Nero and civil war broke out where there had to be a suspension of the war as Vespasian was called to Egypt. But they had not forgotten what was going on in Israel and in Jerusalem and the rebellion of the people. So two years later, in 70 AD, Titus came back and resumed the war. And his commands were at end this affair as quickly as possible and at any cost. And so he went in, and for five months there was a brutal siege of Jerusalem until finally the temple fell on August 30th of 70 AD. And the Romans entered the city and pillaged and burned it. They destroyed the temple to the ground, disassembled uh, it into pieces until there was no temple left. They banned and forbid temple practices and forbid the rebuilding of the temple that it may never stand again, and it has not unto this day. And it was a bitter price for a third of the Judean population was killed in this war with Rome. This is commemorated in Rome now. There's a giant arch. It's called the Arch of Titus. Maria and I saw this when we went to Rome, and on it are carved all these engravings of remembering the looting of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, and this monument still stands to that sad day. But it happened exactly as Jesus said it was going to happen. And there was no joy in this. We see over and over, you'll hear me often talk about the judgment of God towards sin, and always there's sadness in the heart of God. There's no joy. God does not desire judgment. He desires salvation. He desires people to turn away from their sins. And he weeps over this horrible event that is coming as the consequences of generations of rebellion in the hearts of these people. But it's important while we're here in the scriptures to talk about the implications of the fall of the temple and why it is significant. This is not happenstance. This is clearly spoken of here as something of the providence of God, that it's by the Lord's will that the temple is ultimately destroyed and is not rebuilt. And there's much that could be said about this, but I'd like to make three points about the significance of the temple no longer existing. Well, the first one is that the temple is no longer needed. Why? Because the temple was the focal point of the sacrificial system and the, the ceremonial law of Israel. And we do not need the sacrificial system of the temple anymore because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus was the Lamb of God who came not to cover the sins of the world, but to take away the sins of the world. And when your sins are taken away by the salvation of Jesus Christ, you don't need another sacrifice and another sacrifice and another sacrifice. In the past, these things were done symbolically to show the passing forward of guilt. But the passing forward of guilt had to end somewhere. And the hope was that there would be a final Messiah that did away with our sins. And this is who Jesus is. This is what they would not believe. And so there is no need for temporary or symbolic sacrifices. We must go now to Christ Jesus, our Lord, and by faith believe in what he has done for us. And so it is not needed anymore. 
Secondly, there is no more separation between God and humanity. One of the great, beautiful, seismic shifts between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, is the nearness of God to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In the temple, there was a series of structures that kept the people outside and separated in some way from God. Where if you were a Gentile, you were the furthest out. If you were Jewish, you could come a little bit further in. If you were in the priesthood, you could come a little bit further in. If you were a high priest, you would have the closest uh, nearness to the presence of the Lord, but even then, only at certain times. But we know that at the death of Christ upon the cross, something dramatically important happened. This, this curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place is torn in half. And it's recorded for us here in the Gospel of Luke. We'll get to it in some weeks, uh, chapter 23, verse 45. But Mark gives us a little detail that's very important. The direction in which this thing was torn in half. This is no shower curtain, folks. This is a massively heavy curtain uh, that separated two parts of a building. And Mark says that it was torn from top to bottom, which means that God tore it in half. And it's recorded in Scripture that we might know that the Lord Jesus is tearing open the separation between God and man, that there might be something new happening in the world. And it's only a little while later that we have the wonderful, beautiful passage in uh, Acts chapter 2 of the day of Pentecost, where the Lord sends his Holy Spirit to indwell the hearts of his people. Those that love him have the near presence of the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes about it as our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. The people that read these things at that time would have still had a near memory of the temple and understood what it meant for God's presence to reside at the temple. And what shocking language that God's presence by his spirit now dwells in the hearts of those who believe in him. And that is something that we should never ever take for granted, that we should seek more of, that we should long for and love and endear the presence of God's spirit with us daily is shocking. But it has to do with no more need for a temple because the Lord has changed things in the age that we live in and has given us this inestimable blessing of the Holy Spirit indwelling our own hearts. And so the temple is not needed anymore for sacrifices. It's not needed anymore for separation between God and man. And third, the temple uh, is no more needed there's because there is no more priesthood needed. And there's much that could be said about this, but there were thousands of priests at that point in time that functioned to the ceremonial system. And all of those priests, as you read through the Old Testament, some of them were good, some of them were bad, some of them were corrupt, but all of them were sinful because they were people just like you and me. And all of them had a limited priesthood where they died and someone else had to come and take over. But the entire book of Hebrews is about Jesus as our great high priest. Now that the temple is done away with and the priesthood of corrupted people is done away with, Jesus has taken on that role in himself. And he is our great, our perfect, our compassionate, our everlasting high priest and advocate before God the Father. 
We no longer have to go to a priest. There are some religions that teach very much, you must go to a priest. And if you want to encounter God, you must go to another human being to give you access to God. The New Testament in the scriptures are very clear that Jesus is our high priest. And by his spirit, we go to the Lord in prayer and we approach the throne of grace of Jesus Christ directly. And this is an incredible joy. All three of these things are good news. And all three of these things are great progress toward being more near to God and having a more personal relationship with God and put us in a dramatically better place than the people that lived in the Old Testament. And we should not desire to go back to those things. Uh, I encounter regularly people that have a almost a fascination with the Old Testament temple, and they seem to want to go back to those things. And I, I talk to them, why, why would you want to go backwards in what the Lord is doing? Do, don't go backwards. Be assured that the destruction of the temple, both as judgment and as a work of the Lord, was part of taking us into the new covenant of Christ, the grace, the covenant of grace. So that's a little bit about the temple and, and, and the destruction of the temple and Jesus' prophetic word that it would be destroyed and what happens as it is destroyed. But Jesus carries on and goes into Jerusalem. And when he goes into Jerusalem, he does what he continuously does. And then what his apostles will do? He goes into the temple and begins to teach the people. But at this point, he is going into the temple during the Passover week, which is the busiest time in the capital city where people are making pilgrimage from all over the nation to come and to offer sacrifices and to be a part of what is happening at Passover. So the city is just bursting at the seams and people are coming to the temple to make sacrifices. And he comes and he sees the temple as a place that is overrun with business. And he says, the scriptures say that he goes and drives out those who were selling. Mark, in his gospel, gives us more uh, detail. says he, he turns over the tables of the people that are doing business. That is a dramatic thing. If you went into the farmer's market and started flipping tables over, people would have an aneurysm. And they would be very, they'd call the police because what is happening here? Who is this guy and what does he think he's doing? In John, it talks about Jesus driving them out with a whip that he made personally. And in the midst of all this, what is he quoting to them? He's quoting to them the Old Testament prophets. He's quoting to them Isaiah and Jeremiah, people who were calling the people back from their sins and telling them that the judgment of God is coming. And Jesus is taking on this prophetic role with passion and hatred for what is going on. So often we see Jesus, rightly, as a man of full of love and compassion. But Jesus was also full of great power and authority. And part of the power and authority of Jesus is that not only does he love what God loves, he hates what God hates. And it's the same for you and I. It is not enough to only love what God loves and be indifferent towards evil and terrible things. It's, it's not good enough to love what God loves and, and be indifferent towards the killing of the unborn or be indifferent towards sexual sin or all the things that God declares as evil. We must both love what God loves and hate what God hates and take action against the things that, that the Lord hates and declares as evil. And Jesus is doing this. He looks at the state of the temple worship during this key festival and it enrages him. 
So what is happening here is he's coming into this place called the court of the Gentiles. So we're talking about the, the separations of the temple. He's not in the holy place. He's in the court of the Gentiles, which was accessible by Jews and Gentiles and overseen by the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jewish people. And it was a place where they could come and you could purchase an animal. If you'd come in from out of town and we're going to make a sacrifice and you didn't bring something with you, you could purchase it. Or where you could uh, exchange money for a tax. But what had happened is that this had turned into a religious profit-making machine on a grand scale. And think of a giant flea market, not a place of worship. And on a huge scale, people were buying animals, changing money, because only the Tyrian silver coin was acceptable for paying the temple tax. So they had to pay a tax, and they could only pay it with a certain coin. And of course, you had to pay somebody else to give you that coin, just like any time you exchange money. And at this point, there were thousands of priests barely keeping up with the sacrifices necessary for this festival. And it is a massive scale of business where the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees drew their main profit as the ruling class of the Jews. And for Jesus to go in and disrupt this whole scene is going to cost them a serious amount of money. This is like uh, Paul in Ephesus with the, the people that made silver idols to Artemis. And when, when Paul started preaching the gospel, they started losing money because people quit buying idols. And so they went and tried to chase Paul out of town. And the same type of thing is happening here. Jesus' actions are costing them money, and it is, that's the last straw. When it starts to cost them money, their jealousy and their financial loss is going to drive them over the edge. But Jesus is determined to see what? He's determined to see this huge, empty, dead, greedy show of religion return to what it ought to be, which is from the heart, praying to the Lord God, and from the heart, having a true desire to encounter the Lord God. And so he quotes to them from Isaiah and Jeremiah, and I'm going to read to you from the passage that he is quoting in Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, and my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And so Isaiah is talking about people from every nation coming into Israel and encountering the Lord and, and, and finding that it is a place of prayer, a place where people may speak directly to the Lord. They may pour their hearts out to the Lord and personally encounter God, not an idol that has eyes that cannot see and hands that cannot act or ears that cannot hear, but a true and a living God. And the other half of what Jesus says comes from Jeremiah chapter 7 which is a chapter of condemnation for the abominations of the people and the wickedness of the people and all the things that they're doing that is enraging the heart of God and, and 
condemnation that's coming on the backside of it. And they says that they have turned my house into a place of business where they're actually using religion to rob people or using religion as a pretense of getting money from people. And this will not be tolerated by the Lord. The house of the Lord being a house of prayer. What does this mean? Well, it means certainly the obvious that we should pray here. But let's look at a, a broader context and then bring it down to that specifically. The temple and the gathering of the church as an as a application of this should be a place where our hearts are turned towards the Lord. The gathering of God's people at the temple then and the local church now is to be a sacred place, not a secular place. We live in the secular world Monday through Saturday, and we encounter all the godless secular things of the world over and over and over. But when we come to gather with other Christians, and when these people came to remember the Passover, remember God's works in Israel in the past, it was to be a sacred time, a time of true spiritual devotion understanding who God is, believing who God is, and then speaking to him and praying to him and pouring your heart out to him. Not religious leaders growing rich off of ceremony or going through motions outwardly that have no actual resonance in your heart. And we must guard against these things. We must guard against becoming the same way. Having dead religious rote routine means nothing to our hearts or being wildly mistaken that we can give money to God and think that he will be satisfied with us because of receiving that. I say it over and over. God does not want your money. He wants far more than that. He wants your heart. He wants you to love him from the heart. He wants you, and he wanted these people to come to the temple and from the heart worship the Lord. That is when God is pleased with his people then and now. And that always involves prayer. It always involves understanding that we have, can have a personal relationship with God. You think about back in the old day, one of the great characters that does this is Hannah in the tabernacle. Before the temple is built, there's always a place for people to come and encounter God. And she comes and she prays about her childlessness, her inability to, to bear a child, and she pours her heart out to God in prayer at the tabernacle, asking God, weeping, God, give me a child. And what a beautiful picture of someone in earnest devotion coming in humility and asking God to, to grant the, the desire of their heart. And this is what should be happening when we come to church and we gather together. We should be a people of prayer, that we are quick and constant and serious about prayer. But it's interesting that the prayer that Jesus most often upholds is private prayer. Not prayer for a show, not prayer with long and many words and complicated words and all kinds of ceremony, but private prayer, which points to your personal devotion to God, the intimate personal relationship that's possible between God and human beings. And so we want this church to facilitate you entering into prayer with the Lord, confessing your sins, coming and praying. You should never, ever be ashamed of praying in this place. If you know your heart is burdened, come early, stay late, bow your head and pray. If you see somebody praying in these chairs before or after the service, don't stand next to them and loudly keep talking. You know, move off and quiet your tone and make room for people to pray. 
We have cushions right over here that our dear sister Marsha made with her own hands that you might kneel in this place. And this is, I know this concrete's hard. Go get a cushion, kneel, and pray, and pour out your heart to the Lord. And if you know somebody is dealing with something heavy and you see them praying, go put your arm around and pray with them. And you go wander back over this way. There's a little room back over there that is used. Unfortunately, every place in this, in this church is used these days. But it's only used really on Sunday morning and, and in the middle of Wednesday night. But other than that, it's just a good place to pray. It's quiet. It's off to itself. If your heart is burdened, go and pray. May this church be a house of prayer where heart, hearts are turned towards Jesus Christ. May Jesus be glad with what he sees in this church, not upset, not coming bringing a rebuke as to what he sees in this church. Let our hearts be turned towards prayer. All right, so these are two of the things that Jesus is doing here. He weeps over coming judgment. He comes in and, and works to correct some great wrong and injustice that he sees in the temple, but they don't hear him because he goes on in chapter 20 they're angry. The people that control that situation don't repent. They don't change. They come looking for more fault. And they say, by what authority have you done these things? Because Jesus keeps coming back to the temple, and he keeps preaching, and he keeps teaching. And so we see that in chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, and we know that this whole last section of the Gospels is about the, the Passover week, preaching and teaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes come up to him. And so I want to point out this regular pattern of Jesus because it's the same thing that was happening earlier and it's the same thing that happens over and over and over in the life and ministry of Jesus that he's teaching the word of God and he's preaching to them the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why they call him a rabbi. He was a teacher. He came telling people about who God is, revealing to them the truth about God. And because of this, they wanted to hear more and more of what he had to say. But two words are used here. One is teaching and one is preaching. And they're not the same word because they're not the same thing. In some churches, and some, uh, some churches just fall into a, uh, a false understanding or a, a, they don't go far enough. There's teaching, but there's not preaching. What is teaching is the giving of information. I can come up here and in a, in a detached way give you a lot of information about God. And you might learn some of that information about God and leave this place and say, well, I learned things about God today. But preaching and preaching the gospel, which is what Jesus is doing here, is he is teaching them about God because knowledge, right knowledge about God is a foundation for going on and believing and acting rightly toward God. But preaching the gospel is evangelizing people. It's telling them that Jesus is telling them, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah that you have been waiting for. And it's more than information because it always involves a call to belief and obedience. And I strive to do this with you in this place, to give you right information about who God is, to teach you about who God is. But I always want to call you to act on that. It's never okay to be neutral about God. And people were never neutral about Jesus because preaching has authority to it. I don't have my own authority, but they were wondering about Jesus' authority because Jesus came preaching with authority. And the scriptures say there were people saying, we've never heard anything like this. We've never heard anybody come and preach like this man and the authority that he has. And so they ask, 
By what authority do you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Well, the definition of authority is interesting. Authority is the power to enforce obedience, or the right to command. So who gave you the uh, right to command us? We're supposed to be in charge here. We're the Sanhedrin. We're the ruling class of these people. Who are you to come in here and flip our tables over and tell us that we are a den of robbers? Who gave you this authority? And so they've been wrestling with this throughout Jesus' ministry. Because early on in Jesus' ministry, they realize he's not a normal person. He's clearly not from Rome because he's not for Rome. But we haven't given him any authority, and nobody seems to have empowered him, but he has great authority. And so midway through the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 11, verse 15, they try to accuse him of getting his authority from the devil. They tell him that he's possessed of a demon. But everybody rejects that because clearly Jesus is good. This is nonsense. He's not of the devil. He's against the devil. And so it takes them to the final conclusion that none of them want to reach which is that he is actually, his authority is of God because he is God. He is divine. He is speaking as God. That's why there is nobody that has ever spoken like him before. And his authority pierces them to the heart and drives them either to hate him or love him. Because as he speaks to them about the gospel, the good news of his coming as the son of God, there is a reaction always to God's word. We see it all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament. People will either believe and follow and worship and obey, or they will rebel and reject and harden their hearts and hate God. There is a separation that comes through preaching. And so Jesus is doing this in the temple, preaching to these people. But I want us to note the ministry of Jesus is passed down and continued on by the apostles and by Paul and the, those that planted the early churches. And it is this ministry of preaching and teaching. And so what Jesus did by going into the temple and teaching and preaching and bringing the authority of God to bear and preaching the good news is the exact same thing that the early apostles do. Because they're preaching and teaching before the destruction of the temple. So they come right back and do the same thing that Jesus did. They preach and teach in the temple. And then they go to the synagogues and they try to persuade people from the word of God who Jesus was and what his ministry was all about. And when they go out in their missionary endeavors, they seek to, they go again to the synagogues and then they plant local churches. And what do they do in those local churches? They teach and they preach because the teaching and the preaching of God's word is what gives us a right understanding of who God is. This is why Jesus did this. And Paul, in his last letter to Timothy, in a letter that is specifically related to ministry within the church, he gives him this great charge in one of the last chapters that he writes before his death. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And so Paul charges him in this powerful, multi-layered way to do what I'm trying to do to you this morning, which is preach God's word to you. Help you understand who God is and to press your soul to believe in him, to trust him, to confess your sins that you might find life in Jesus Christ. And I am fully committed to this pattern, which I understand to be a biblical pattern. I would ask you to pray for me as I try to fulfill this ministry in this church to preach and teach God's word, that it might have a dramatic and life-giving impact on your life. And from this, flows everything else, all the other good and beautiful parts of the Christian life. It drives our joyful singing and worship. What we did here before, we did it chronologically before, but in, in reality, it follows the preaching because the songs that we sing and the way in which we sing them flow from a right understanding of who God is. Acts of service to others and to the poor flow from a right understanding of who God is. People that have reversed that in the past taught something called a social gospel. The going and doing acts of service is what comes first, and then that defines our understanding of God. But that's not accurate. That's not how Jesus or the apostles ministered. Our heart for prayer flows from understanding who God is. We don't come and pray to him first or we will be misguided. And so many people, their prayers are misguided. They know there's a God out there, but they don't know how to pray to him. And they don't know what words to say or how to encounter him. What they need is they need to understand who God is, believe in him, and then be able to pray to him. And so there is a direction to all of these things. Preaching and teaching the Bible defines our other actions and not the other way around. It defines our personal religious experience. So to wrap up our time together this morning, I want to look at the crowd reaction. I love, one of the things I love about the Gospels is that it's always recording the reaction of the crowd. We don't get that in the epistles or various other things. We don't know what happened when people read Paul's letters openly. And the book of Acts and the Gospels, though, talk often about people's reactions. And in verses 47 and 48 is the summary reaction to what is happening here with Jesus. It says, And when and he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. What, a, what, a, what, a, what an incredible statement. I hope that there have been times in your life where the things of God were so interesting to you and your heart was so into them that you were, you were listening to every word because you wanted to hear, what is God? Who is God? Who is Jesus what is Jesus' will for my life? Jesus, help me with this. Whatever it may be, your heart was greatly engaged with it. And the people are in awe of the teaching of Jesus. And they want to hear more of his words. And so the leaders cannot just up and get rid of him. They're plotting and scheming. And as we're going to see, the devil himself is involved with this. But I must ask you this morning, where are you when you hear what I've said to you this morning about Jesus? Is your heart hardened against him? Do you just not care? Or do you hang on the words of scripture? Do you long to have time, to make time tomorrow and the next day to open up the scriptures, to read, to see who is Jesus and what is this will for my life? What is this great salvation that has come to me in Christ? 
I pray that you will not be hard-hearted, that you will not live a prayerless life, that you will not have an outward show of religion that is empty in your heart, but that your heart will be genuinely engaged in seeking after Christ, that you will desire private prayer and that you will get down on your knees before the Lord and pour your heart out to him and find the joy of his salvation. I'm thankful that you're here this morning. Part of you being here is an important part of this. I was grieved this morning driving in just just around the corner uh, before the service and parking lot was full at the VFW, and I thought, well, there used to be a church that met there. I thought, well, maybe there's, maybe there's a new church that started. In the, this, is, this is great. I get closer, though, and the sign says, oh, there's a baseball card show today that starts at, starts at 9 o'clock. Freezing cold morning, single-digit morning, and people, the parking lot's packed to see baseball cards on a Sunday morning. I pray for those people. I'm thankful that you are here to seek the Lord and not baseball cards. May your heart long for Christ and the people that are around you that would be looking at baseball cards and comic books this morning instead of Jesus, pray for them. Seek them. Do the work of an evangelist to tell them about Christ that they might know his salvation. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we love you. I thank you for your work in our hearts and I thank you for your word. I thank you for your ministry. And I pray for your work of your Holy Spirit to be greatly at work in our midst. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would not be hardened, that we would not be indifferent, but that we would hang on the words of Scripture, that we would want to know Christ and seek Him, and that we would be a people of prayer, that we would see our great insufficiency, and that we would take our needs to you, Lord Jesus, in prayer, and that this church would be known as a house of prayer, not a place of empty worship or religious show or, God forbid, a place that is about the accumulation of money. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would do your work in this place that the the lost might come to salvation. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.